what is eternally significant for you? You know, these lives go by fast, and things change sometimes really disruptively, don't they, in our lives and in our world and in our nation. But what actually matters eternally? In his high priestly prayer, Jesus, who was baptized, who stood in for us in the baptism of repentance in the Jordan River with John the Baptist, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays to his heavenly Father, to his holy Father, that the Father would glorify Jesus and the work that Jesus has completed for us from his coming, from his incarnation, and specifically from his baptism all the way through what was about to happen, Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus prays that the Father would now glorify the Son and his work, which is the basis of our salvation. And Jesus prays that we would be one with God in the same way the Father and the Son are one. And that is a holy communion. And in the midst of that, early on in the prayer, it's, it's a distinctive moment in the prayer. You can read this in John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus refers to himself, it's unique, um, in, in third person giving his name and title because this is the basis of Jesus' work and what he is presenting, what he's offering to the Father. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they, that we, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's the direction of our salvation? What's the direction of your faith? It is to have the knowledge of God. We say, well, I, I thought the Christian faith was about, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Precisely, Jesus is now telling us what is eternal life. <laughs> what is the direction? What is the goal? What's the purpose of our salvation? To be in the kingdom of God, to know God as our heavenly father, to know him. This is eternal life, to know you, Father, Holy Father, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is of eternal significance to you? Knowing and worshiping God. Our most important endeavor on earth, by far, no, no comparison, is to know and to worship God. Everything else should be put to the side to the extent it gets in the way of your knowing and worshiping God. And parents, grandparents, what's the most important thing toward which you can direct your children, your grandchildren, and anyone whom you love? It's to know and worship God, because this is eternal life. This life, this mortal life is going to fritter away. It's going to, it's going to go away really fast. What is eternal life? It is to know and to worship the one true God. 
now more than ever. In this decade in which we live, in this age, in this generation, in which God has placed you and me, can it be any more apparent after this past week that wise and faithful people will direct themselves and anyone whom they care about toward the one thing that really matters, knowing and therefore worshiping God. Today's sermon opens with the question, do you know God? And who is God? Holy Lord of hosts. Do you know him? You may say a few words about him. I'm asking, do you know him? The holy God who is worth all you have, who is worth all you are, and who can give you life, who is life himself. Today we're going to be returning to key scripture from Isaiah chapter 6. Yes, we're going right back to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 throughout this month, really. Isaiah chapter 6, key verses 1 through 4, and then really just 5. We can kind of, verse 6 is kind of a bridge over to where we'll be going next week. Uh, but let's, let's turn again to God's word in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We'll begin here and read it together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem or train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Talking about one, they're just describing one of the various seraphim. We don't know how many there are. We know there are multiple ones. And, and one called to another, literally in the Hebrew, it's this to that. Um, this to that said, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him, the seraph, who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, we're back to what we ended with last week. In the year that King Uzziah died, king of the southern kingdom of Judah, reigning in the line of King David in Jerusalem, Uzziah. Second Chronicles describes the reign of King Uzziah. After David and Solomon, who are, if you know almost anything at all about the Old Testament, you know David and Solomon, the major kings of Judah, really the next, on a large scale, significant king of Judah. 
after the breakup, after the division with the northern tribes breaking off, the next major league king was Uzziah. Uzziah came to the throne at the age of 16. As I mentioned last Sunday, he reigned for a total of around 52 years, a very long reign. And Second Chronicles describes to us how Uzziah was, in large part, a very good and effective king. As I mentioned last Sunday, this was in a time of Indian summer, so to speak, a respite. Uh, after, after the rise of and the aggression of the Assyrian Empire, talking about like what would be northern Iraq right now, the Assyrian Empire pressuring down on Syria and all in Israel and Judah and all the little nations of the Levant, there was a respite in the first half of the 8th century before Christ. And this is during the reign of King Uzziah. And, and, and Uzziah took a good advantage of that time. He was a really good administrative leader. He was a very effective and wise and powerful military leader. He defeated the Philistines. You know, when you start talking about the kind of the various little nations fighting with each other, Philistines, uh, really the city-states of the Philistines were always a threat to, uh, to Israel and to Judah. He defeated the Philistines. In many ways, Uzziah was a godly man. He learned godliness from his primary preacher, Zechariah. He learned, Uzziah did, the fear of the Lord. And 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15 tells us, in Jerusalem, he made machines. I mean, he was really advanced. He made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. <laughs> Major military advances here in the, in the, in the 8th century BC. And his fame spread far. For he was marvelously helped. Well, who helped him? The Lord, right? And people that the Lord gave him. Until he was strong. Man, if we could just stop reading at verse 15. It's just like some political and governmental leaders. You just wish, could we just stop a week or a month or a year before it all goes haywire, right? Well, this is Uzziah. So you get to 26 second. Chronicles 26, 15, it's like, can, can I just close the book right here? It all sounds good. Oh, no. When he becomes powerful and believes that, you know, apparently his poster should be all over the Capitol, and, you know, he, he is the deal. He's our salvation, verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Let me repeat that. When Uzziah grew strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to Jehovah, to the Lord his God, and entered the temple. Don't tell me about the laws. Don't tell me about the boundaries. I'm the man. I'm the one who's made Jerusalem great. You can just see this seeping through the scripture. I mean, he's not a priest. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He's certainly not a Kohen. He is in no position to do what he's doing. But, but you hear, I mean, he, he's the guy. It's all about him. 
for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord. He entered the temple of holy God, Jehovah, to burn incense on the altar of incense. No, the law says no. But Uzziah, he's reigned for 42 years, right? He's the boss. He's the one around 750. After reigning for all that time and having all that success, he goes in and the priest oppose him. Wait a minute, you work for me. You're the priest. I'm the boss. You work for me. You do what I tell you to do. I don't care about the laws. I don't care about the structure. I'm going to burn the incense. But Azariah and the other priest opposed Uzziah. We read on in 2 Chronicles. And Uzziah became angry. He boiled with anger. You know what it is when people become angry? Are they holy at all? Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're moving really far away from holiness at that point. Human, mortal, fleshly anger? Oh, no. And the scripture says, verse 19, Uzziah, he was so angry with everyone. Because this is his town. This is his place. He can do whatever he wants. He became angry with the priest and he held the censer in his hand. Verse 19 says, he's going to do it anyway, although all the priests are opposing him. Right there in the temple of holy almighty God. He held the censer in his hand to burn incense, but he was stricken with leprosy. The scripture says leprosy broke out on his forehead. I mean, that's a sign that this guy's, this guy's leadership has turned corrupt. And for his final decade, Uzziah was isolated. The scripture says he was not able to come out to the people because he was a leper. And he certainly was cut off from fellowship in the Lord's house thenceforth. From the moment he arrogated unto himself what was not his. Final decade, the 740s, Uzziah was rotting in leprosy. But he's the one who made us strong. He was the good one. He was the good king. And Jotham, his son, was his co-regent. As I mentioned last Sunday, in the middle of that decade, in 745, while Uzziah was rotting, the bigger story for the entire world civilization history, and certainly the Near East, was that Tiglath-Pileser III in 745 became the ruler of Assyria. And this guy was going to be aggressive almost immediately some, from 745 forward. He's putting pressure back on the Levant because he wants to get to Egypt and he wants to control the Mediterranean. It's the big story going on here. So Isaiah tells us, in the year that old, leprous, rotting, arrogant, fallen Uzziah, hey, he was our last hope, right? In the year of the death of Uzziah, I saw Adonai, the real sovereign. You hear that? Uzziah is either about to be off the throne or he's now off the throne because he died. One or the other. We don't know exactly. In the year of that death, 
I saw, not Uzziah. By the way, he's in isolation. He's leprous, or he's already dead. But I saw the real throne <laughs> and the real sovereign. I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne. You know, we throw around the word awesome a lot. That was an awesome game. That was an awesome piece of pie. <laughs> but, but there is one who is awesome. I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And as I highlighted for you last week, the hem of his garment, the hem of his garment, fill the whole temple. Did Isaiah see the Lord's face? No way. You can't look at the holiness. I mean, a fallen mortal man cannot look. He's looking at the hem, hem of his garment and the burning ones circling around up above him. Is this literally the temple? We don't know. Um, you can read it that way. You can also read it to he's transported in a vision, Isaiah is. Maybe even a heavenly vision. He doesn't clarify that. Above him stood the seraphim. As I said last week, only time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we get these. Uh, burning ones, that's what their name means, the burning ones. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Remember, these are not fallen human beings. These are the burning ones who serve around the Lord, right? But even they cover their faces, their eyes, in the presence of holy Lord of hosts. And their job is not to stare at God or, by the way, to ask God a bunch of questions. I can't wait till I get in front of God. I'm just going to, I'm really going to drill him on all my questions. No, no. Their job is to listen and to obey. So they're covering their faces or their eyes. They're covering their feet, acknowledgement of their creatureliness, even though they are angelic, heavenly beings. They are creatures, but also probably meaning our feet are at your disposal. We go where you say, boss, king. And then they flew because they're serving. Um, burning ones in the presence of unapproachable light. The holy God. As we said last Sunday, as I said, and we're going to be circling around this throughout the year because we're in Isaiah, central to the theology of Isaiah that the Bible gives us are these themes of God's holiness and his glory. And here we get it. Verse 3, and one, one seraph called to another. And just note, we're not talking about God's voice even. The seraphim, one seraph's voice shakes the whole foundations. And they're nothing compared to God. Are you getting the picture here? They're nothing compared to God. So one calls to another and says, here it is. Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah, Yahweh of hosts, Shabbat, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
This is the Trisagion. This is central to the entire scripture. If you miss this, you basically miss the essence of coming to know God. Hebrew uses repetition for emphasis and superlatives. Die, die, you will surely die. Jesus uses it over in the Semitic, the Aramaic, over in the New Testament. You'll see this when Jesus says, Amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you. By the way, that is a Semitic word. It has nothing to do with men and women. Just let, let me make that really clear. I mean, I don't know where pastors or other people are coming up. It's a, a Semitic word that means truly, truly, amen, amen. Okay, so you get the doubling, right? Very rarely do you get the super superlative of tripling. You get it on the negative side occasionally. For instance, Ezekiel 21, 27. Ruin, ruin, ruin. It means it's going to be really bad, that judgment, right? Ruin, ruin, ruin. And then we get the one superlative, super superlative with respect to God. This is unique unique in the Old Testament. Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. Yahweh Sabaoth, holy, holy, holy. The super superlative about God. Holiness is the supreme essence of, you know God? The super superlative of God in his essence, in who he is, is his holiness. This is what the Bible is telling us. This is the Trisagion. Um, three holies. Greek, okay? Um, you get it over in Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, of course. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around and within, Day and night, they never cease to say. Why do they never stop saying? Because it is the super superlative, the very essence of who God is. He's holy. He's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The holy God who, who commands the entire forces, the host of heaven. Lord Sabaoth. And here, yes, you can, in the New Testament, have it as God Almighty. All power. All, all thing is, but it, it, it all centers on his holiness. And then Isaiah 6, 5. Really, let's just primarily look at verse 5 today. And I said, woe is me. A little bit of humor in this pretty serious. Um, you may know the Yiddish oive. Okay, that comes from the Hebrew, and here you've got the oi, right? Whoa, this, this, is, this is bad. Woe is me, for I am ruined or silenced or lost, silenced literally. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, remember verse 1, when King Uzziah died? Now we're talking about the real Hamelech, the real king. It's him. 
For my eyes have seen the king. Who is he? Jehovah who rules the heavens and the heavenly forces. Holiness. What is its essence? You ought to be asking that question. <laughs> if this is the super superlative, the essence of God, what, what is the essence of holiness? Well, now, let me tell you. If you just do word searches and etymology, this kof dalet shin in the Hebrew relates to other Semitic languages and other terms for holiness. And you can go over to other languages. You also have this term of holiness. It means Literally, on its face, it means he's separate, okay? Separate. But the scripture, the Holy Bible, notice that, the Holy Bible, right, is telling us a lot more about holiness. And here, this is why Isaiah 6 is so important for you to know God and for you to know the rest of the scripture. It's not just separateness or otherness. The other the other Middle Eastern religions had gods who were holy. All the rest of the world had gods who were so-called holy, but it just means they're divine and they're different than the rest of us. But you remember most of the other gods had a, pool, a full, you know, the pantheon included some really evil gods. They're also holy. Baal, you know, the bull god of the Near East, who has relationships with cows, he's holy. The cows and his other consorts are holy because they're unto the divine, right? In the other religions. Do you hear what I'm saying? That the, the, the gods who cheat and lie and do horrible things, well, they're still holy because they're different than we are, right? That's in the etymology. That You just do the word search on its face. That's not going to give you anything. Temple prostitutes, oh, they're holy. It's kind of a, a, an end run around, you know, being immoral because they're holy. It's a holy activity, you know. No, no, no. Here we've got something totally different. The real, the one true God, the God of Israel, your God, your Savior, is different because of his moral majesty. Matir uses that term, I love it, for this passage. It's his moral majesty. His separateness is defined not only by his divinity, but also by his character and conduct and centrally by his word. His word who ultimately comes to save us. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is a different religion totally than the other religions. This is a different gospel. This is a totally different, the one true, holy, moral, majesty God. And all his other attributes come in. His justice, his righteousness, mishpat, tzedakah, his, his, his unfailing love, chesed, his emunah, his, his truth, his, his faithfulness, all this stuff coming around his holiness. And notice, if you're not believing me yet, see what happens here. Verse 5, and I said, boy, boy, woe is me, for I am silenced. I am lost, I'm ruined. Nimity comes from the Hebrew tama to be silent. 
at a great loss under great devastation. That's, that's what's going on. And you understand here, Isaiah is the holiest man of Judah. And if we, if we take verse, chapter 1, verse 1 seriously, he's already in ministry, okay? And he cannot say a thing. Do you hear what I'm saying? He cannot say a thing, and he knows it. The seraphim, they can speak in the presence of the Lord and regale God's holy majesty, right? Isaiah knows. Do you understand this? That without what Jesus has done for you, you cannot speak. You can't even begin to speak in the presence of God. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm totally silenced in the presence of God's moral majesty and his perfect, pure word, the holiness of God. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice, Isaiah does not say, oh, you're all-powerful, and I have no power. Now, that's true, right? That's true, but that's not what cuts to the core here, right? It's not about the power. You could say, well, God is infinite, and I'm finite. Well, that's totally true. Isaiah should and probably is totally intimidated by that too, right? Wouldn't you be? When you deal with God, aren't you? But that's not the core of the issue. That's not the heart of the issue. He's immortal, and I'm mortal. I'm going to be dust in the ground. It's totally true. Isaiah could have said that. He doesn't say any of the things I just brought up. Why? Because at the heart of the issue, it's the message of God's holy moral majesty and the supremacy of his word. And so what does Isaiah say? You look at it, you tell me. You talk about his finitude, where I'm not sure what's going to happen to our country next year or something like that. Is that what he's talking about? No. His uncleanness, and specifically his unclean lips. Because you know, out of the mouth comes what's really going on with you, right? I'm a man of unclean lips. And notice this, folks. In the presence of holy God, Isaiah is convicted. He's been, he's been, you go back and read through chapters one through five. We don't know exactly the chronology on all this, but some of this surely has already been building up. He's been bringing judgment. But now he doesn't say, it's them. I'm good, God. I'd be really good with you, but unfortunately, I've been kind of tainted by this society or this nation I'm hanging out with. Does he say that? Does he throw them under the bus and say, but I'm, I'm really good. Does he say that? No, in the presence of God's moral majesty, his true holiness, what does Isaiah say? He not only says, I'm unclean, unclean lips, but also everyone in this nation. It's a both and. Get it? in the presence of God's holiness. He didn't try to throw them under the bus. Remember, remember, Adam, you gave me this woman. Woman, Eve, the snake made me do it. None of that going on here. You notice this? My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God's 
transcendence and eminence together. See, we already get this with holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you can spend the rest of your life reflecting on that call. Because already we get both the transcendence and the eminence. See, you cannot see face to face the holiness of God. It's unapproachable light. It's what Paul is talking about when he's talking to Timothy, right? What we open with the call to worship. But in God's glory, God's holiness comes and fills. And so here it is, the whole earth, you know, the Lord of the heavenly host, and then the, the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is the manifestation and the presence of God's comprehensively filling all. And that's how you're saved. Christian, do you understand this? This is how you are saved. He has come to us in the fullness of his glory. John 1.14, Reed preached on this a couple of weeks ago. And how are we united with him? By his, the manifestation of his filling holiness, his glory in us. You are born anew and filled with the Holy Spirit for holy communion to know and to be saved in and to serve the Almighty God. Try again. So, the gospel truth is we're not only saved by God's grace, by faith alone, he calls us to be sanctified. And then finally, on this baptism of Lord Sunday, I want to go to John chapter 17 again. I told you about the opening of this high priestly prayer, and now we have the Trisagion again. Again, I'm telling you, okay? Let me just highlight these three verses for you and understand what baptism of the Lord Sunday is all about. 11, 17, 11, John 17, 11, second part of the verse. Holy Father, Hagia, Hagia, Patros, okay? Um, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Remember what we pray in the, the Lord's Prayer, right? Hallowed be thy name. Well, in his holy name, Jesus is calling us to be claimed by the Holy Father. Verse 17, sanctify, hagiason, again, you got the, the three holies here, at work in our salvation and in Jesus' intercession for us. I want you to hear this. Sanctify, make them holy, consecrate them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, verse 17. Jesus' prayer is for God to sanctify us. You don't sanctify yourself, but you yield to God and he sanctifies you. How does he do that? Jesus' prayer is for God to sanctify us. God sanctifies us in his truth, in his truth, his holy word. And what does Jesus say? 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. So, verse 19, John 17, 19. And for their sakes, I, the baptized, crucified one, I sanctify myself, hagiazo, imaltan. I consecrate myself for a holy offering. 
so that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is God's holiness come to us, and he will make you holy. Have you come to him? Do you know the holy God? Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I heard a lot of people telling me, well, you know, last week, a lot of people are really PO'd. A lot of, that's why this is going off and I, I support it. And this, is, this, is this consistent with who God is? What do you think? Destroying, ripping apart? No. Faithful striving and fighting? Yes. But not destruction unto our anger. No, no, no. But for you, Christian, turn back. Repent. God's grace is at work within you. And Jesus brings sanctification. This is eternal life. That they know you, the one and only God. And Jesus Christ, whom you sent for our salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.